Hey, before you're seated, I got a long one for you today. So get ready, take a deep breath. I want you to turn, give someone a fist bump and say, the sun will come out tomorrow. Because that is what the meteorologist said and I pray to God it's true. I pray that the sun will come out tomorrow just like little orphan Annie sang about. Lord, please let the sun come out tomorrow. Anybody else tired of the fog? Um, yeah, ready for the sun. Um, hey, welcome to Journey. I'm Christian. If you haven't met me, um, we're in Acts chapter 2 today for our Bible study time. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, grab your notes out of your bulletin so that you can follow along uh, that way. If you don't have a Bible, but you have a, a smartphone with the Bible app on it, pretty easy to follow along that way. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, don't have the Bible app on your phone. Everything I read from the Bible will be on the screen uh, because we want, we want to make it easy for you to follow along with the Word of God because we believe the Word of God is the will of God for the people of God. Uh, and most of us in this room are trying to figure out how to, how to live our lives pursuing Jesus. Uh, we're in a series called Consecrate. This is the fourth week of that series. If you look up the word consecrate in the dictionary, it has two definitions. Um, to declare something sacred or to dedicate yourself to a divine purpose. We are saying at Journey... Um, we, we believe that uh, the gospel of Jesus, the mission and the message of Jesus is sacred, and we are dedicating ourselves to it. So we're, we're consecrating ourselves both in what we believe about Jesus and his mission and in how we're dedicating ourselves to his mission. Our goal this year in 2024 is to follow Jesus in a way that will help us fulfill the mission. Like that, That's just it, plain and simple. We've said in the first four weeks of this series that we believe if we will be faithful, that eventually God will make us fruitful over time. We said last week that if we engage with Jesus, that will uh, impact us deeply. But if Jesus impacts us deeply, the world will see that and it will impact them deeply as well. We said when Christians truly see, hear, and understand who Jesus is, that the world will more clearly understand, see, and hear who Jesus is through us. So we left off in the middle of a conversation last week in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit had fallen from heaven. 120 Christians were praying uh, all Jewish people, most of them from northern Israel and Galilee. And when the Holy Spirit fell on them, they began to tell the people in Jerusalem, people from around the world who had gathered for um, the Feast of Pentecost, who Jesus was. We're told that they were able to speak in 16 different languages to 16 different regions of the world that were kind of scattered over three different continents. And when they did this, the people from other places started asking each other, how is this possible that like all these people from Galilee are speaking to us in our own language and own dialect and we can all understand what they're saying about Jesus. We jump into that conversation today in Acts chapter 2 verse 12 um, in a Bible study that I'm calling Simon Peter Take Two. And maybe today the key point of today's message that we won't get to till the very end is this. Maybe you need a second chance in 2024 spiritually. Maybe in 2023 you blew it. Just the way it is. Um, but you're ready in 2024 for a second chance. If that's you, today's Bible study might be for you. Here's what we read in verse 12. Everybody's speaking all these languages or telling people about Jesus, and it says, they were all amazed and perplexed. They said to one another, what's going on? What does this mean? But others who were there were mocking them and said, they're just filled with new wine. They're drunk. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice, and he addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That means 9 a.m. Now, for me, that is the weirdest reason to try to convince someone that you're not drunk that, like, a preacher of the gospel should give. Like, you would imagine Peter would say, we're not drunk, like, we're all preachers. 
or we're not drunk, we've been having a prayer meeting, or we're not drunk, we're in church. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, we're not drunk, it's way too early for that. I'm glad the Holy Spirit <laughs> didn't fall like during the evening service because he might have had to say, so we've had a little bit to drink, but like that's not what's going on. That's still like some, it's just the, it's the oddest excuse to me that Peter would give. We're not drunk, it's far too early. It's like, <laughs> okay, never mind. Um, then he says in verse 16, Here's what's going on. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, or what we usually refer to as Joel in the English language. As we look at what's happening here, we see the first thing that Peter does is he, uh, he introduces the people to the problem of the day. Not just the problem of his day, but he's, he's actually backing up a few hundred years. It says he's speaking to devout Jews, which means they know the Old Testament scriptures, they know the prophecy of Joel, which means Yahweh is God, one of 13 men in the Old Testament who is named Joel. We don't know much about him other than God used him to deliver this prophecy in a time of destruction, a time of lamentation, a time where repentance was needed, and a time where restoration was desired. And Peter said, what's happening here is what happened in Joel's day. So the fourfold message of Joel that all these people would have known about was that they were living through a time of destruction, lamentation, Repentance was needed and restoration was desired. Now, here's why I say the problem of the day. And I changed this a lot of times in my outline. I had the problem of Israel, and then I canceled that. And then I had the problem of Israel in the world, and I canceled that. And I said the, pro the problem of Joel. No, this is the problem of every day. The problem of every day is that the world is so broken and people are so broken that things go wrong. And when things go wrong, people feel bad. And when people feel bad, they want to feel better. Like three of the four things that are on the screen, we live through on a weekly. It is the problem of our day. Things go bad. Plans get interrupted. We feel bad. We want it to be better. The prophet Joel took advantage of a, a locust plague in Israel hundreds of years earlier. And as a result of this locust plague, uh, the prophet Joel stood up before the nation and he said, listen, like our country is destroyed. For the crops to be destroyed meant the economy would be destroyed. Not only were they not eating food, they were not selling food that they would export so that they would have money in the bank. Like, it devastated their country. The locusts led to drought. The drought led to desperation. The desperation led to devastation. And they were, they were in a mood of lament. Lament meant they were crying out to God saying, God, you got to do something. And Joel showed up and he's like, you always have three or four. Man, when things go wrong, you always feel bad and you always want God to fix it. But he said, here's been the spiritual problem in our nation. There's never any inner repentance for what we might have caused to go wrong in our life. And the message of Joel was that sometimes God allows you to go through destruction, lamentation, a desire for restoration so that you can look inward and realize like you've got to repent. The word repent means, it doesn't just mean, we say it this way in church so often. The word repent means to change direction. And it does. It literally means the word repent is a word you would use of a skateboarder who's skating and then stops and reverses and starts skating the other way. The word repent means change direction, but spiritually it means change director. It means to go from being in charge of my life to letting God be in charge of my life. And Joel said, this locust plague is a perfect picture of our life. When things go wrong, we feel bad. We want God to fix them, but we never stop to see what God needs to fix in us. It's not true of everyone in the room, but it's true of somebody in the room. Something in your life has gone wrong that you'd like to be fixed, that you're having a hard time with, 
but you have not yet repented from the part you played in it. You've not yet acknowledged, I made a bad decision, I took a bad step, I made a bad investment. Like, something's happened, it's been destructive, you feel bad about it, you want it to be fixed, but you've not yet learned your lesson. Like, Joel's like, if you would step back when things go wrong in life and see if there's anything you need to learn about your soul, like, not only would eventually you have crops in the future, but God would, like, change your heart in real time. Because the sanctification process in followers of Jesus, which means the process that God uses to make us more like Jesus, because the sanctification process in us is never finished, there's an area in everyone's life in the room where we need to repent. Everyone has an area where you need to repent, where you're either not living under the direction of God or you're not living um, under the authority of God. There's some area in your life where you're doing it your way instead of God's way. And Joel says sometimes God allows you to have things in your life shaken up so that you can kind of look inside and say, is there anything this year I need to change to make different from last year? Repentance. Joel said the good news for Israel, agriculturally, he's like, next year the crop's going to be better because God's going to send rain from heaven. And when the rain falls, he said, you're going to have early rain, you're going to have late rain. He's like, we're going to have the biggest heart. Like, God sees what's broken. He's going to fix it because he's going to send rain. But listen to what he says. He says this in Joel 2, 25 through 26. He says, God says, I'm going to restore for you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, the great army. That's how he describes the locust, which I sent among you. You'll eat in plenty and be satisfied. You'll praise the name of the Lord your God who's dwelt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. God's like, listen, this has been a hard year, but I'm gonna send something from heaven that will make next year better. Right after that, he will then say, rain is not the only thing God's gonna send from heaven because some of you have had a bad year in your crops and you need God to do something, but all of you have had a bad year in your soul and you need God to rain something down from heaven that will change your heart from the inside out. God can do the exact same spiritually that he's doing agriculturally in Israel. He can take everything broken and wasted and thrown away in your life, and he can restore it to you. The great London preacher Charles Spurgeon said this about the book of Joel as he overviewed it. He said, you know, you need to remember the problem of the day and in our world is a need for broken things and broken people to be restored, not just, um, not just for crops that have not been harvested to be harvested. And he said the problems that we go through have a promise, and the promise is restoration. Spurgeon says, no one by wisdom or power can recover what's been utterly destroyed. God alone can do for you what seems impossible. And here is the promise of his grace. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locusts ate. And God can restore our lives that have up to now been blighted and eaten up. He can yet make it complete and blessed and useful to his praise and glory. It's a great wonder, but Jehovah is a God of wonders. And in the kingdom of his grace... Miracles are common. Can somebody say amen? Like Spurgeon's like, there's going to be things that wreck your life. And you're going to wonder, will I ever be able to get back to where I was? There's going to be things that eat you up. There's going to be things that destroy everything you've tried to do. You're like, there's no way that I'm ever going to get back that thing that went so wrong. Well, on your own, yeah, you're right. But Spurgeon said, in the kingdom of his grace... Miracles are common. And like the problem is sin. The promise is that repentance can lead to restoration. But you've got, you've got to be willing to look in and see what God wants to do. We also see number two, not just the problem of the day. We see the problem or the promise of the present. So as Peter continues to preach this message, he says, here's what's going on. Just like in Joel's day. 
things are going wrong around us, but God wants to fix what's in us. Then he says this in verse 17 through 21. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you have a pen, I want you to circle those last three words in your Bible, shall be saved. Because here's what's interesting on that day and on this day. While nobody in the crowd was looking for Jesus, everybody in the crowd was looking for salvation. This was a crowd of religious people celebrating a religious festival. These were a group of people who wanted God to intervene in their life. And here's what you need to know. In the crowd of life that we live in, not everyone's looking for Jesus, but everyone is looking for salvation. You say, how do I know that? Because it's, a, it's an election year. <laughs> and if you look at what politicians promise, they promise hope. They promise change. They promise rescue. They promise to make things better. If we put all of those things together, we would say they're promising salvation from the things that are wrong. You see, this crowd wasn't looking for Jesus, but they were looking for hope. And they were looking for change, and they were looking for better. And Peter says, there's someone who can offer you that. This is a day of salvation for you, and I know you're not looking for Jesus, but what you are looking for, Jesus can give you. There are a lot of people and politicians, there are a lot of parties, there are a lot of things that will promise this, but only Jesus does this, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's interesting, Psalm says even the atheist is looking for hope. You know that? Psalm says the atheist hope that there's no accountability. The atheist hope that there's no God. The atheist hope that there is no judgment. Everyone is hoping for something. And Peter says everyone who calls upon Jesus is going to receive it. They shall be saved. He also says in the last days, this salvation, God's final act of salvation, is going to be an event that the world can't miss. Now, what's cool is this book is a book filled with acts of salvation. The first act of salvation was skins, animal skins provided for two naked people, Adam and Eve in the garden, when they were naked and afraid. Um, it's become a show, but it started way, way, way back in the beginning. God provided them animal skins. Um, after he provided them animal skins, God provided a type of salvation to Cain. After he killed his brother, God put a mark on him to protect him. Later, God would bring salvation through an ark when the world would be flooded with water. Later, he would provide salvation by calling a man out of a pagan family to walk with him. Later, he would provide salvation from a burning bush. Later, he would provide salvation by bringing his people out of Egypt. Later, he would provide salvation by military victories in the land of Cain. And later, he would provide salvation by exiling his people till they could get their hearts right so he could come back. Like this book is a book of salvation. But Peter said the last one is the big one. The last, like, G like God saved the best for the last. In the last days, the salvation that God offers, man, the heavens will talk about it, the earth will talk about it. 
If you're gazing into the stars, it'll tell you about Jesus. If you bury your head in the sand, it'll tell you about Jesus. Like in the last days, everyone is going to hear about Jesus because God is a God of salvation. And not only is this whole book about that, God wants the entire world to know. In the last day, salvation will be offered and no one will be able to miss it. And one of the ways the world will know is, is Peter said, God said, when my spirit falls, my people will prophesy. When my spirit falls, my people will prophesy. God's spirit through God's people is telling the world about the hope of Jesus. You know how you can always tell when God's spirit is moving? Because God's people are talking about it. God said, when my spirit falls, my people are going to talk about it. The world will always know where a move of God is happening because the people of God will be talking about that move of God in their life. I've seen that over and over this week. We've been in our uh, 21 days of prayer that you heard Pastor Ryan mention and we've moved into the devotional time of that, not the service time of that. Uh, and this week, if you've been tracking along um, in our book, if you haven't, you can grab one today from the Connection Center. But members of our ministry team, one verse at a time, have been going through Psalm 139. And all of them have been saying this. This is what the Bible says. This is where the Spirit has made that true in my life. And I want to share that with you. Do you know if you're a follower of Jesus, when the Spirit of God moves on you, the things that happen in the Bible will happen in your life? And God's plan is for you to open your mouth and say, here's what happened in the Bible. Let me tell you how that's happened in my life. Let me share with you how all that has happened. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved in the last days because God's spirit will fall and God's people will talk about it. It's the promise of the presence of God. But number three, we see all of that is possible because of the person of salvation. So we see a problem, we see the promise, but then we see this person in verses 22 through 28, like Peter just, Peter calls some people out and he names Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. To summarize, Peter said, Jesus is God's Savior. What you need to understand is Jesus is God's Savior. In verse 27, he calls him the Holy One. That was a, an Old Testament title for the Hebrew word Mashiach, which in the English we transliterate Messiah, which in the Greek we translate Christ. The English word is Savior. David says that God's Savior is going to come. Peter says Jesus is God's Savior. And here's how we know that. Because a thousand years before Jesus, King David of Israel prophesied that God's Savior would be known by his resurrection from the dead. You will send your Holy One, and even though he dies, he will not stay dead. This, by the way, is one of what I would call three pillars of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. In his message in verses 22 through 28, Peter gave the three crucial elements of the gospel in his Pentecost sermon, and I want to give them to you because if anyone ever asks you why you follow Jesus, your first three answers should be the things that Peter said. They are the foundational truths of why anyone follows Jesus. Element number one, Jesus was attested by God. If you wanted to summarize that a little differently, you might say this, um, 
Jesus was proven to be more than a man. If you wanted to get a, a, a little deistic or theistic, you could say Jesus appeared to be supernatural. You say, how? Because he did works, wonders, and signs that normal people cannot do. Jesus was attested by God to be more than a man. And I love what Peter said. Peter said, that's undeniable. The words he used in verse 22 were, Jesus was attested to you as more than a man by God. And you know that. You know this. Nobody at this point spoke up and said, we don't know. They were all like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we've heard. We heard about the signs. We heard about the miracles. We heard about the wonders. Uh, I love what Paul said in Acts 26, 26. The apostle Paul speaking to a guy named Festus. I think he was an uncle in the Adams family, bald, kind of dressed like a monk. Um, and he says to Festus, in telling Festus about Jesus, um, he says, you've heard about everything Jesus did because he didn't do it in a corner. Like he wasn't hiding. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Jesus died, was buried, and raised again. There's 500 people who are still alive who saw it. Go ask them. The New Testament church never gave the message, believe by faith. We can't prove it, but just trust us. Peter's like, you saw it. Paul's like, you saw it. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is like, nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a bowl. Like, you will see what I do spiritually. The early church was fully convinced that Jesus was a supernatural person because of his signs and his wonders and his works. If you ever meet anyone who says, oh, Jesus is a great teacher, but I don't believe he's supernatural, you know they have not read the Bible. Because the Bible attests that Jesus is more than human. He's supernatural. You don't have to follow him as savior, but to say he's just a normal person is insincere or it's uneducated. Because the Bible doesn't give us that opportunity. The first element of why we follow Jesus is because he proved on planet earth that he was more than a human. Element number two, he was crucified by sinful men. He was proven to be supernatural from God and he was crucified by sinful men. You say, who are those sinful men? It's interesting in verse 23, Peter's like, it's complicated. There were some religious Jews who rejected him. But they didn't actually kill him. They, like, they handed him over to the Romans and some lawless Gentiles. They, they actually put the nails in his hands. and They're the ones who killed him. But he said at the end of the day, it was all according to God's sovereign plan. Like God used some people who had already planned to reject the Messiah. God used some people who already wanted to crucify people. Like God found the people who would work his plan that he decided like since the creation of the world needed to be put into place so that people could be saved. We just read about this in our Bible reading plan in Exodus chapter nine. God's like, I found Pharaoh because I knew Pharaoh would constantly harden his heart. I, I knew I needed someone who would not bend the knee to me to prove myself to. In Romans nine, Paul says that God raised Pharaoh up for the very purpose of proving that he wasn't God. He just needed to find someone who, who he could work his plan through. Same thing happened here. So I've been to Israel with our church um, eight different times. Had one of my most fascinating trips this summer. Uh, when, when we go to Israel, when, when eventually you go to Israel with me, uh, we use a tour company that for the most part uh, uses guides, Israeli guides who are, who are not followers of Jesus. Um, they don't believe most of it. They've taken a tour class, so they know at the sites how to teach what the Bible says happened there, but hardly any of them are followers of Jesus. 
So I know that going in, and my goal is just to really have good conversation with them, try to get to know them relationally, see if I can get to the point where they will ask me questions. By the way, when you go on trips with me, I tell the guys, you're not allowed to teach the Bible because you don't believe it. I'll teach the Bible. You just get us in and out of the right places at the right time. But I'm starting to have the same guides over and over and over now. So I had a guide who I'd had before um, who we kind of picked up relationally after spending two weeks together. Um, and we talked the whole trip. And about day three or four, he realized he could not offend me by asking me questions or by challenging Christianity. So we sat on the front of the bus. I sat in one front seat. He sat in the other. And we just talked the entire time. And I think he realized this, this guy is safe for me to ask all my questions to. I think his fear was probably he's going to tell the tour company and they're going to fire me. It's like, dude, we can talk, we can talk about anything. I'm good. Um, so the last day, we're at the Israeli Museum at the Shrine of the Book where the Dead Sea Scrolls are located. Uh, which I've been to many times. And he's like, have you already seen this? I was like, yeah. He's like, um, could I invite you to coffee uh, while the, we, we had all of our college kids there, while the kids look at this, which means, hey, I want to sit down and talk about something. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. So I told Danielle and some of our leaders who were there, hey, I'm going to go with the guide. And we're, we'll be in the coffee shop talking. And he wanted to ask me one question. We sat down and he said, every person who comes over here says that the Jews are responsible for killing Jesus. Do you believe that me and my people are responsible for killing Jesus. And I said, so that's a, that's a complicated question. Well, let, me, let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that God used both uh, Jewish leaders um, who rejected Jesus and like Roman, um, like Roman military to crucify. Like, um, really, you would say that the Jews and the Gentiles both had a part in this. They went to the verse where, um, you know, Pilate washed his hands and said, I'm not going to be guilty of this. And the Jewish leader said, let, let his guilt be on us and our children. Do you believe I'm guilty forever because I'm Jewish? And I said, okay, so hang on. Um, you're asking whose fault it is. I think the better question is whose plan it is. See, before there were Jews or Gentiles, there was God who desired to be in relationship with humanity and they sinned. And God said, I'm going to send someone who dies. So I know you're asking whose fault it is, but a more important question is whose plan it was. It was God's plan, and it was God's plan because God cares about not just his people, but all people. And maybe the more important question to ask is not who did it, but the fact that you believe that it happened, and you're not asking what does it do for me. Like we're sitting a mile from where this is believed to have happened. We're sitting less than two miles from two tombs that they're not sure which one it is, but they're both empty, and you're hung up on whose fault was it. The question is, whose plan was it, and why? It was God's plan for your salvation. So, like, that's how I would answer that question. And he was like, mm, finish his coffee, and like, that was it. And I thought, man, I, I, okay. So I, so I hope next time we go to Israel, I get him again so we can pick up this, like, conversation that kind of happens, like, year, year over year over year over year over year. Jesus was crucified. But, like, the reason we follow him is because element number three, he was raised from the death and grave. Like, he was attested to be a supernatural prophet, no doubt. But then he was killed. But then he was raised from death and the grave. And here's what you need to understand. When David talked about this a thousand years before, he said, if this happens, and because I believe this will happen, he said, here's what it does to my heart. Because of the person of salvation, people with salvation are going to experience four things that we all desire to experience, but I don't think we always do. Because of the person of salvation, people with salvation, number one, will not be shaken. David says, because I believe God's Savior will come, die, but not stay dead, that allows me to not be shaken. Can I ask you a question? What shakes your faith? 
you know, we've got all these uh, 1% initiatives this year. Some of them, we offer 10 devotionals for our church to read. The one that uh, Danielle and I are reading through this year together with all of our elders, a lot of our staff is Tim Keller's uh, God's Wisdom for Navigating Life in Proverbs. And he, he said last week in one of his devotionals that if you're a follower of Jesus, but you're still shaken, the things that shake you reveal your idols. Let me, let me share with you how he said it. I think last week it was on uh, January 22nd. He said, there are excessive emotions surrounding things we make our idols. You'll be inordinately shaken, anxious, angry, or despondent if anything threatens them. Idolatries of the heart lead to foolishness in life. So if you're a follower of Jesus who died and rose again, you're supposed to not be shaken. So when you're shaken, why? Because that is a place for you to learn to repent and say, I think... I say I trust in Jesus, but I think I trust in this. I had one this week, a um, little bit of a health scare, had a, had a cyst that got infected and had to be dealt with. I don't know if you're like me. Um, like if I ever find anything under my skin, it's like, oh, there's something under my skin. And within 30 minutes, I've died of cancer. Like, that, like that's just like how my mind goes. <laughs> so I had this thing that I had to go to the doctor for, and I kind of planned my funeral on the way there and was writing my <laughs> eulogy on the way back. Like, it, it, um, it shook me to my core. It was nothing. And it shook me to my core. And then I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, I think I've made my physical health an idol. Like, I, I don't think I do, but how shaken I was to my core when I thought something was wrong with me, um, I think there's something there I need to repent of, and I need to ask God to help me grow. Maybe it's your marriage. Bad day of marriage is a bad day of life. Because it's an idol. Maybe it's your kids. Kids having a hard time, you're having a hard time because it's an idol. Maybe it's for all of us, it's finances. For so many of us, it's health. David said, because Jesus came, died, and was resurrected, I won't be shaken. So when we are, certainly got to be focusing on something more than Jesus to bring us stability. See, that would be an area where lamentation should turn to repentance. God, I realize there's things I set my heart on that are less than you, and I'm sorry. I want to turn from doing that and turn to Jesus. David also said that people with salvation will live in hope and know the paths of life. Man, these are two good things to have happen for us. They're really good things to have happen for our kids. They'll live in hope and they'll know the paths of life. So one of our initiatives for uh, 2024, very specifically with families with kids in elementary school or under, um, is this little tracker we've got called 36 and 24. We're challenging all of our children's families, families with children, to be in church in person at least 36 Sundays in 2024. That, by the way, is missing four months of church. Um, but busy people, we, you know, we give little stickers that they can put on every Sunday that they were here. Why are we doing this? Let me ask you a question. Especially for those of you with kids in public school. Do we believe that it is the responsibility of the public school that we send our kids to to give them spiritual hope every day? Do we believe that's happening there, yes or no? No. Now, some teachers, yes. Some coaches, no doubt. Some bus drivers, some office workers, some administrators, there's no doubt that when your kids interact with them, they come home with hope. But for the most part, they're going to places that are hopeless, not hopeful, not hope-filled. It's not really what the school's designed to do. Let me ask you this. Do those of us whose kids play sports in the club world whose kids go to public school, do we, do we really think it's 
It's their responsibility to teach our kids spiritually the paths of life. It's not what we think they're going to do. It's not what they're trying to do. So how are our kids going to be filled with hope? How are they going to know how to like, live in life? We've got to bring them to places where that's the purpose. I promise you, when you bring your kids to church on Sunday, we're going to try to pour into them hope. We're going to try to pour into them the knowledge that will help them know the paths of life. Like We cannot give our kids to 185, 190 days of school and then give them 15 Sundays and think that they'll have enough hope to overcome, that they'll understand enough direction to overcome. Because of the person of salvation, people of salvation won't be shaken, live in hope, know the paths of life, but finally they dwell in God's presence. I love this. David said, because he died but didn't stay dead, man, I'm going to live in the presence of God. It's been our goal as this year has started in this 21 days of consecration of prayer to just get you in the presence of God every day. That's our goal, just to get you in the presence of God. And kind of the grand finale of that in our last week of prayer is what we're calling our Revival Nights Church, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. How many of you were raised in a church that had revival? Anybody? All right, so you know what's coming. The rest of you, get ready. It's going to be like better than, better than you can imagine. Um, one of our great friends, Clayton King, will be speaking on Wednesday. Vance Pittman will be speaking on Friday. I'll speak Thursday. Every night afterwards, we'll have some food and fun. We've got child care for kids under five, but you've got to register for that. So when you pick your kids up, make sure you register them for child care. You say, why are we doing revival nights? Because I don't know about you, but I need more of the presence of God. I just need more of the presence of God. Um, one of our favorite worship leaders, Hannah Grossi, will be back leading worship Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Her husband, Christian, who was our church planning resident, will be preaching on Sunday. It's going to be an awesome week but only if we just come and soak in the presence of God. You say, why revival night? Can I be really honest? Why revival nights? Because some of you need revived. Why did Peter quote Joel? 39 books of Old Testament scripture that he could have quoted from. Why did he quote the second chance guy? Is it because 53 days earlier, He disqualified himself because publicly he failed a spiritual test that God had given him for spiritual leadership? Was it because he was probably still carrying the scars because the enemies of Jesus and the friends of Jesus both saw him fail at the exact same time? Is it possible that Peter personally had been living in the book of Joel, destroyed over his faith failure, lamenting who he had been, desiring to be restored, but that he had found that through repentance? And he wanted to tell everyone else in a Bible study we're calling Simon Peter, take two, listen, take it from me. Sometimes things go go wrong in life and sometimes they're our fault. And sometimes we need a second chance. Sometimes we need a revival. Run towards Jesus. Things have been destroyed. We feel bad about that. We hope for better. You cannot forget repentance. Run to Jesus. Because watch this, when you do, The thing that disqualified you might be the thing that qualifies you to have the most impact in Jesus' hands. Your spiritual test that you failed becomes your testimony in humility of how God has been so gracious to you. The scar you carry from failing spiritually publicly becomes the star that God uses to point people to him. If you need revival, don't just think about it, pray about it. 
run to it. Run to it by running to Jesus. We're going to close with our reflection questions as you read these questions on the screen and answer them. Just do so with a heart of prayer. And then I'll come back and close this in prayer. But God, as we run to revival, open our hearts to answer these questions, to sit with your spirit. And God, for those who need it, kind of take two in 2024. 2023, we need to throw that one away. Start new in 2024. God, breathe the wind of your spirit into their soul as we move into this revival week. In Jesus' name, amen.